0: up on today's show, what's going on with the border? It's closed until July 21st. At least, will it open after that? Residential school survivors calling for an end to arson attacks on churches. We'll hear from a 60 scoop survivor and Alberta's provincial government announcing changes to the way ambulances can transport patients in Alberta. We're going to switch gears and go back to the border now. We've talked about it before. There's a lot of confusion around the border. There's a lot of frustration around the border. Uh, We know that it will remain closed until July 21st, at least. Now, this time last month, there was uh, intense pressure from both sides of the border to reopen. Ottawa, though, said no. And shortly after they made that announcement, the U.S. government said the same thing, extending the closure for another month until the 21st. Incredibly frustrating and even more confusing for a great number of people especially as summer is now upon us. So let's get some insight into just how important this is and, and what we need to do around the border. We're going to chat with Maria Lily-Shaw, who is a senior economist with the Montreal Economic Institute. Uh, Maria, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, when we take a look at this, getting the border reopened, uh, a huge issue, obviously. And there, you know, you're know, you talking about families, individuals, businesses, all kinds of people suffering every day that it remains closed, right?
1: that's correct and you said it well in the beginning there's been a lot of confusion and we've now moved on to frustration surrounding the canada u.s border issue and one of the things that's fueling the frustration is the government's inconsistency when it comes to the conditions that must be met in order to reopen the border so previously the canadian government stated it would contemplate reopening the borders once 75 percent of canadians had received one dose of the of a covid19 vaccine and 20 percent were fully vaccinated now given The fact that this threshold had been met days before the previous prohibition period was set to expire at the end of june many were convinced that the borders were going to reopen but that didn't happen instead a new golden rule was put in place so now a minimum of 75% of Canadians must be double-dosed before Canada even contemplates lifting its border restrictions. So the fact that the rules keep changing and promises are being broken is haper, is hampering the government's credibility and creating a sense of uncertainty for businesses and the general population.
0: You know, Marie, when you talk about that number, as you said, 75% fully vaccinated, um, that's of all Canadians. And so you take, you take kids out of that who aren't even eligible. That means 86% of eligible Canadians would need to get vaccinated, fully vaccinated. There's a very good chance we will never attain that benchmark.
1: Yeah, and that's a scary thought. And it considering the, the pace of vaccination and the rate of vaccine shipments that we're receiving and the schedule that that is uh, that we have right now, this new threshold might not even be met until the start of September. And that's if it met at all. So we still have a lot of months to to go before we even contemplate reopening, according to this new rule, um, which it, which hurts uh, Canadians. It hurts our businesses. It's costing us millions every day.
0: Obviously, having the border reopened um, would be awesome. But I think, you know, it's important to talk about, and, y- and you mentioned it, the fact that having some sort of clarity, because, it, you know, when you're talking about from things as small as summer vacations with the family to businesses that have operations on both sides of the border and businesses that that rely on cross-border commerce, just having some sort of certainty that you could plan on would go a long way, right?
1: Exactly, because uncertainty is a business's worst enemy, at least maybe after COVID, but still it it hurts them a lot. And closing the border last year may have been justified, given our scientific knowledge at the time, and it may have even provided an extra layer of protection against the virus but we have to reevaluate the necessity of the remaining restrictions there has to be a greater sense of urgency towards this issue given the evidence and the science that we know now and canada's tourism in- uh, sector would be better off even with just a partial reopening of the border no matter what that may look like and a little more business travel wouldn't hurt us either it wouldn't hurt the economy
0: and 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 like you say back when the border was closed i think a lot of people Almost it was a sigh of relief because we saw what was going on in the United States in terms of COVID case counts and all the rest. But if you take a look at what's going on right now, uh, on both sides of the border, it seems like we're at a position where it doesn't really make sense to keep the border closed. And we heard that from people before saying, Mm -hmm. what is the reasoning behind
1: this? I can't speculate towards the reason, sadly, but let's say we consider the safety. Because maybe some people are uneasy with the thought of uh, visitors coming into our country. And looking out for the safety of Canadians is still essential. But now that we have more information about the virus and how it it, uh, can spread, I'm certain there are ways of keeping people safe without hurting our businesses and tourism industry anymore. And let's not forget that there are still sanitary measures in place so even if the border reopens tomorrow masks are still mandatory inside social distancing is still the norm hand sanitizer is not going to disappear from uh, our store entrances so even for those that are reluctant to get the vaccine there are still measures in place that look out for their safety
0: the other thing is The border is closed, kind of, sort of. I mean, this is the other thing, right? Some things are allowed, some things are. not But if you fly across the border, you know, they've got all kinds of rules in place to make it easy. The quarantine has been lifted, although the border is still closed and you shouldn't be crossing it anyway. So none of that makes sense either.
1: No, Canada is being left in the dark. Canadians can now travel freely to the United States and even some European countries with minimal restrictions upon their arrival and their return. I mean, in some places, they don't even have to wear masks anymore. So other countries will have a robust tourist season, but Canada, like I said, is going to be left in the dark. And we have to consider what that is costing us every day. And there's also logistical... Questions that are being asked because the United States did not implement a vaccine passport, but I mean traveling on condition of uh, a vaccination is not new. Many countries already ask for proof of immunization yeah. against various other synthesis, like yellow fever, for example. And so, if they were able able to provide proof of vaccination against those illnesses in the past, there must be a way of providing sure. proof that, that they have obtained a COVID vaccine. It's not a new concept, and in any case, providing proof Proof of vaccination could vaccination can be a temporary measure. So they could be required in the short to medium term. But perhaps in the long term, such a measure would disappear altogether. At least this way, the most eager vaccinated Americans could travel freely and help support our businesses and tourism industry.
0: So we've talked mostly about what it means for Canadians, but what about Americans? We, uh, we've, we've talked to them on the show here before. People uh, you know, in Washington state, and I know the governor, uh, not the governor, but a, a politician in New York has been very vocal about saying this is ridiculous what's happening with the border. A lot of pressure from south of the border, too, to get this solved.
1: Oh, my goodness, yes, absolutely. I mean, our southern neighbors make 24 million trips to Canada, and nearly 70% of those are done uh, through our borders, our land borders, sorry. And so for every day that they remain closed, we're deprived of tens of thousands of travelers supporting our businesses, and our tourist industry. And they also help support the 1.9 million jobs that are in tourism-dependent industries in Canada. So, on And on top of that, American vacationers spend a whopping $11.3 billion every year when they visit Canada. And so we stand to lose nearly $31 million every day the border remains closed. And that's a conservative estimate because it doesn't take into consideration the fact that they spend more during the summer months, which have already begun. And if we look beyond the border closure, meaning if we look at international travel by plane, we're losing millions more every day because residents from other countries, while maybe fewer in numbers to visit Canada, they spend almost the exact same amount as Americans when they visit Canada, meaning $11.3 billion every year.
0: Okay, so July 21st is our next... I don't know, marker, that's what we were told uh, mm-hmm. it's close to, at least until, are we seeing any change in positioning? Like you said, the Prime Minister, you know, throwing out the new numbers. Um, how optimistic are you we'll see some movement by July 21st?
1: Oh, my. <laughs> optimistic. I wish I could be at this point. Uh, I am hoping, um, Let's uh, I'm at least hoping the public opinion on this uh, go, leans more towards reopening, Absolutely. I think if uh, the public puts enough pressure, perhaps some movement can be seen. They've been talking about a phased uh, yeah. way of opening the border. But, I mean, it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to actually publish a plan, inform uh, Canadians how exactly they want to go about this, what exactly has to be met. And if they have a plan, they have to stick to it, too, because they can't simply change their mind a couple of days before well, this is the, thing. the uh, prohibitions period expires.
0: Yeah. Nail it down and stick to it. That's the first big step that we need. Uh, Maria, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. Have a great day.
0: That is Maria Lily Shaw, who is a senior economist at the Montreal Economic Institute. We've talked about it before, and I guess we'll just have to wait and see uh, as we get closer. But, you know, it's the the most frustrating thing for me, and I know for a lot of you, and I'm seeing your texts, is uh, this moving of, of the goalposts, right? We're, we're told, okay, once you reach this, then everything can be okay. And we reached that, and suddenly, oh, no, now we're going to change it a little bit. Uh, the, the, the mark was seventy twenty. That's what it was. Some jurisdictions said seventy five twenty. Okay, either way, Canada reached 75% first dose, 20% second dose. We're considerably higher than that in terms of second dose, and a little bit higher in terms of first dose. So we reached the benchmarks that were put forward, and then suddenly the Prime Minister... Uh, last week, I don't think it was an official policy statement. It was more of an offhand, well, now we're taking a look at maybe 75% fully vaccinated, which as I was saying with with our guest, if you take a look at that and you remove under 12, you're looking at about 86% of the Canadian population being fully vaccinated before the border is reopened. That may never happen. We may never get to 86% fully vaccinated. In fact, there's a good chance we won't You know, polls show that somewhere between 18 and 20 percent of people just won't get vaccinated. So uh, it's a push. It's a stretch. And take a look at what's going on on both sides of the border when it comes to cases. They continue to decline. We were talking um, earlier this week about the situation that happened up in Warrenville. You probably remember it well. It happened right across the country, in fact. Uh, A recent rash of of church burnings in our country. Uh, Warrenville lost an historic Catholic church to arson just north of Edmonton. Um, And as I said at the time, I can really understand the anger. I can understand the frustration that could lead to someone taking such action, but uh, at the same time, I think it's absolutely the wrong way to go. It, It is a crime, and more so. It's only going to further the division. I, I, I don't think it really helps anyone or anything. And this week, a group of survivors from the 60s Scoop and Canada's residential schools came forward to make a similar statement and call for an immediate end to church burnings. And joining us now for a little more about this is uh, Jen Allen-Riley. Um, Jen is a 60s Scoop survivor and the daughter of a residential school survivor. She's also an assistant Pentecostal minister at Living Waters Church. Uh, Jen, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, just tell us your initial reaction when you saw news of of these arsons that we saw across the country. When you first heard of these incidents and as more and more started to take place, what were you thinking at that time?
2: When it first happened, it like, okay, it made sense. It made sense as to why it was happening, as you had said. But then as it kept on going and kept on happening, I actually got really, really fearfully scared because I'm like, this is just going to get worse. And not only that, but... um, This is actually a hate crime happening. If people were burning down mosques or synagogues at the rate they're burning down churches, the RCMP would be totally involved, and this would be declared a a national hate crime. So the fact that that hasn't happened because there are churches is interesting. But as Indigenous people, we do not burn down people's places of, of worship. We just don't do stuff like that. And I'm really worried that people are going to start blaming us, thinking that we're doing this. And it might have been asked in the beginning... Like, First Nations people might have been doing this because it happened on reserves. Mm-hmm. But since then, it's become, like, the anarchists. It's become, like, the left-wing activists. It's um, And it's almost become the thing to do. That if a, a First Nations um, burial site is found with our, our residential school survivors, the first reaction is, burn down a church. And so I predicted that... um but it wouldn't, it wouldn't just stick with the Catholic denomination, it would move over to other denominations. And so it already has, it's yeah. moved over, two Anglican churches have been firebombed. And some churches have not even been involved with the residential school system, like the Pentecostal church had, uh, was never involved. And so it's only a matter of time before, like, people are just like, oh, there's a church, so let's bomb it or let's burn it down and start destroying it. And that's, that's just an evil spirit,
0: that's a spirit of hate taking over. Jen, I think you make a really good point. Um, You know, when when it becomes the thing to do. I think you're right. Um, You know, it's almost like a snowball. The first Mm -hmm. one happens and other people just pile on. Um, And I'm interested, you're saying you're worried and you're scared about what it might cause. Because I think that's an important point to this is, you know, when we're talking about truth and reconciliation and, and coming together to improve things, to me, this only furthers the divide. And we know there are people out there who will use this as, you know, to, to to further that divide and to make things even worse than they already are. Is that what you're talking about when you say you're worried and scared? Yes. So,
2: like, have you heard of the Soldiers of Odin?
0: Yes, absolutely. They're a, they're, yep,
2: yep. A, they're a white supremacist group. Yes. So you get people like the Soldiers of Odin who are paying attention to what's going on, and they get angry, and they decide, we're going to go do something about this. And then you're going to have, like, a really bad, like, racist, uh, religious war happening. And I'm you not, know, like, fear-mongering, but because I've seen this happen in other areas. Yeah. And, um, you yeah, know, like, I mean, it's only a matter of time before certain people in Canada get really upset from how this happening, and they're going to go take action. And those people, I believe, are going to meet the white supremacists, such as the soldiers of Odin.
0: Um, yeah, I think you're right. You're talking about fringes on both sides that will use this to to further their own political motivations. Now, y- you talk about the anger that this could cause. We talked about earlier about the anger that, you know, is understandable in, in a number of people seeing what's happened uh, at these residential schools. So now you're going to have anger set up on two sides and nothing good can come from the anger, right?
2: Yeah, nothing's really good, nothing good is gonna come from this. And basically, it's going to release the spirit of hate. Like, it's just yeah. gonna cause hate on both sides. There's already hate. And the fact, how we even got to where we're at today is as a result of hate someone hated us Indigenous people and threw us in residential schools and took our culture and stole who we were. And that's how our children's bodies ended up in the in graves that we're finding today. And that hate, that spirit of hate, it just keep on going until so 150 years later, we're still in the same place.
0: So, Jen, we both have said that we understand the anger and the frustration that caused this or, or led to this. Um, what, what what can we do with that anger? What, what what is the proper way? I mean, none of us are saying that it's it's unjustified in terms of feeling that way. Uh, what you do with it is different, though. What's what's the proper way to to handle this? Because people are angry, they are frustrated, they are heartbroken.
2: What we need to do is we need to come together as a nation. We need to actually start believing our residential school survivors. We need to go talk to them. We need to hear their stories. Our residential school survivors have been telling these stories for years, and it fell on deaf ears, and no one believed them because it sounds so so horrific. And so now the truth's coming out that they were telling the truth from the beginning. So we need to go listen to our residential school survivors. We need to stand with our Indigenous people across Canada. We need to mourn with them. We need to stand and support them in their grief, and I guess we just need to pray. Like, we just need to come together as a country, and we need to deal with the reality of what happened in this country to a certain sector, or group of people, as a result of hate.
0: Um, are we seeing that? Because I, I, I really think that, you know, with these discoveries, or at least, you know, the discoveries for most of us, as you say, these stories have been around for a long time, but they've certainly changed in the way that they're being received nationwide in the last little while. I think a lot of people are changing their thinking around the current state of Indigenous relations in our country and having a lot more understanding and recognition of why we are where we are today. Um, Are you seeing that? And again, this kind of violent action will jeopardize that too.
2: What I am seeing, and I'm I'm seeing a little bit with the Caucasian people, is that um, people... People don't want to believe like um, that this such a thing happened, so they're trying to make up excuses. They're like, yeah. "Well, maybe yeah. the kids had TV. Maybe they got really sick. Maybe they're malnourished. Like, maybe there's an excuse. Maybe these people didn't really, easily kill children. Do this." And I always stop and say to them, "No, no, no. If these children died in these schools of like malnutrition or something, people would call the RCMP to let them know someone died. The fact that they buried them in mass graves." shows they're trying to cover something up so something bad really happened here and so i know i see a lot of caucasian canadians trying to look away and make excuses for this effect so i always bring that back and remind them that and i know this is really hard to look at because i know me myself as an indigenous person it's hard to believe that such a thing would happen but now we have proof to prove it's actually happening
0: yeah i think you're right and and a lot of people do look away and do try and rationalize and try, uh, do try and and not justify, but um, sort of lessen the blow that they're feeling. Uh, Jen, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you for your time. Yeah, you bet. Thank you very much. That is Jen Allen Riley, who is a 60 Scoop survivor. She is the daughter of a residential school survivor and an assistant Pentecostal minister at Living Waters Church. And she was part of a group that came out on Monday and said, stop burning churches. We we, we can't continue with this. It is absolutely the wrong approach to be taking. Um, and uh, as you heard her say, that vandalism, and as uh, she called it a hate crime, um, only furthers the divide. It only makes the situation that we're dealing with in this country worse. An announcement made by the province yesterday, they're bringing in some changes to where ambulances can bring people in Alberta. Uh, Starting with 10 locations this year, some people needing care uh, will be taken to locations other than hospital emergency rooms. That includes things like care centres and hospices. This is Health Minister Tyler Shandro. A given patient may need an ambulance but doesn't always need to go to a hospital emergency department. Sometimes the right care for that patient is available at another health facility, one that's closer and uh, that can see the patient more quickly. And that's why I'm pleased to announce that Albertans can now be transported by paramedics to another health care location when a hospital emergency department is not the level of care that they need. It will also mean fewer delays for paramedics so EMS can make better use of its resources and diverting some patients from emergency departments means a bit less burden on those emergency departments. But to be clear, this isn't about cutting visits to emergency or saving money for EMS. It's about getting every patient to the right care. And that's the the one and only goal for EMS always. So there's the announcement from the provincial government yesterday, making things uh, a little bit different. The way it's going to roll out, um, nine health centers in smaller locations. One is a Calgary health center. Uh, The 10th is phase one. It's a new uh, hospice and medicine hat. So um, changing things a little bit uh, there. Um, Not everybody seems to think it's a plan that's going to work. We've heard from a number of people saying that uh, this isn't really going to address the problem. But uh, let's get into that a little further uh, with Mike Parker, who is... Uh, the president of the Health Sciences Association of Alberta and uh, uh, an advanced care paramedic, he joins us now to talk about this announcement from the province yesterday. Uh, good morning, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Shay. Thanks for having me. So let's just uh, get your take. Uh, the announcement from yes. the province yesterday meant to streamline operations and keep ambulances on the road longer. Do you think it's going to be effective?
3: This is a this is an interesting conversation, Shay. That we've. We've been doing this program for over 10 years in Alberta anyway, so I, I find it very interesting that, that it becomes a ministerial announcement from the, from the health minister. Shay, before we delve truly into this, I want to paint a bit of a picture of what it looks like in Alberta, if I could, and explain to all of our listeners what it looks like out there when a Westlock or a Mournville ambulance is responding to a call in Edmonton or Okotok's ambulance paramedics are responding to city of Calgary. When the employers or AHS says there's always a unit coming, that's true, but they might be coming from 100 kilometres away. So that's kind of the scenario of where we look today, and I was hoping for an announcement that would say something about addressing the issues of the resource levels in this province, but instead we're rehashing something that we already do. We've been doing for 10 years. So to think that uh, palliative uh, is a solution, well, palliative transport doesn't just happen. It requires a lot of uh, consultation resources a bed availability and in this case they're touting it as we're going to help uh albertans we're gonna we're gonna get those ambulances cleared up like i said we already do this now and this doesn't change a single thing for the resource levels and crisis that our members are facing every single day
0: in this province. okay hang on i need some clarity around this because like you say this was um billed as a change in the way that we do things with 10 um facilities being brought on now with more to be added in the future. How many I mean were those facilities already being used this way for the past 10 years or is this an addition? I mean tell me exactly what you say what you mean when you say we've already been doing this for 10 years.
3: In the cities of Edmonton and Calgary some of the facilities that have been highlighted are already used for exactly what is being touted as a solution. So maybe they've added a few uh, outside and and including in the, the announcement centers. In smaller centers, including the Medicine Hat, one that was featured. I want to be clear with you, Shay, and to all the listeners, there is no uh, critical issue with resources being backed up in hospitals at Medicine Hat. The critical issue is the Medicine Hat paramedics being trapped in Calgary doing calls and not back in their own communities. That's because the cities of Calgary and Edmonton are so under-resourced, underfunded, that they can't keep up. So they're dragging in the rural communities from all over the province to try and resource the inner cities of Edmonton and Calgary. So there is the issue that we should have been talking about yesterday. That's what I was hoping from the Minister of Health. And it seems that he is being misled by the Chief Paramedic Sandback in saying this is going to fix some things. And then when questioned on it, Sandback had no idea how this was going to help. Sandbeck was questioned on how many of our members are involved in a medical leave or a psychological injury, had no idea. Well, that tells me exactly where he is as far as leadership goes within the EMS community. No wonder our members are screaming so loud about a failed system.
0: Well, I, I I know in covering this story over the years, the fact of, you know, and, and we've all seen it. If you've been to an emergency department, you've seen uh, EMTs sitting around and waiting and waiting and waiting for the patient to be admitted. That has constantly been a cry that I've heard from EMS operators and EMTs saying, this is a massive problem. We're wasting countless hours every day. So I think, I mean, this will help at least in some regard with that, will it not? When you're talking about such a very small demographic of people that are being transported
3: to a palliative care center... I'm talking about is, ERs. Well, yeah. So, so that person maybe now goes to a palliative care, which they've already been doing. Uh, the impact... I wouldn't be taking a person that needs to be booked into a palliative care center to the ER anyway.
0: Right, yeah. So but They also so mentioned urgent care centers and things like that.
3: Yeah, and, and we'll see because if they don't accept, then we can't transport it. You know, the the, the system requires resources. Shay, this is the thing: is that since two thousand and nine, there's been a steady decline in resources and a continuous increase in call volume, and the the crisis is a, is ahead. When I tell you that there are four hundred unfilled shifts in the city of Calgary for the month of July, I'm not. This is real. This is a screenshot that I received yesterday from a member saying there are over four hundred available shifts this month in calgary alone and that's an unfilled ambulance they don't have the staff they have run these folks into the ground and this announcement does nothing to support what is truly happening
0: out there okay. i fear that the minister has been bamboozled by this one it seems to me like we might have two different situations going on here we when we talk about edmonton and calgary Um, Based on what you're telling me, it seems like it's an entirely different situation in smaller centres and in rural areas. So this announcement, you know, we're talking about places like uh, Medicine Hat, Bashaw, Sylvan Lake, Lacrete, McGrath, uh, Slave Lake. We're talking about smaller centres here. So um, let's focus on that for now. Sure. Uh, uh, will this benefit them specifically? I realize Edmonton and Calgary may be extraordinary circumstances, but for these smaller centers where this change is being implemented, um, do you see a benefit there?
3: The, Shay, I want to be clear that the transport criteria for urgent care, as, we, as you highlighted a second ago, are already in place. When you look at a smaller community uh, that does at least have a resource in that city or town, if the ambulance is actually there, transporting them over to a community health centre or to the respite home that, that might be available mm-hmm. is something they do already. Like, okay. this, is not, this is not reinvention. This is not a brand-new concept. If the, if the chief paramedic came forward and said, we have something that is cutting-edge and groundbreaking that we're going to try to cut our wait times in hospitals and get our resources back on the street where they belong to protect all burdens, I'm all ears. I'm happy to hear it. But regurgitating old news stuff that we already do and have been doing for over 10 years, it's not helping. Shay, when I say that that, that people aren't able to make it to work anymore because of forced overtime, their expected shift is a 12-hour shift, and suddenly they find themselves at hour 13 and hour 14, and they are nowhere near their station to get off duty
0: and being reassigned critical events because we just don't have the resources to respond. And that's and province-wide. You, that's not just in the big centres. It's right across Alberta. We're short EMTs?
3: It, it is across the province. And just, and again, follow the, follow the path here of the Medicine Hat or the uh, Westlock ambulance being drugged into Edmonton. Now there's nobody in Westlock. Yeah. These folks are off shift at whatever. They've done their 12 hours of service to their community. They find themselves in downtown Edmonton at the 12th hour and the closest truck to a critical event. So they're going to be assigned to it until they can find additional resources. This, this is what it looks like for these folks. Uh,
0: Mike, as, as you know, uh, whenever we have a discussion like this with somebody in your position, I hear from listeners, uh, just to give you an example, you know, a union guy yep. asking for more funding. How original? I mean, yep. um, I'm interested to know, you said, bring us an idea that um, would work. Is it simply you want more members and you want more funding? What else could be done to make this better aside from just spending just- more money?
3: Just throwing more money at it, right? Well, let's look at it here. We haven't spent more money on this system in in 10 years. When AHS first took over, we reduced the number of available ambulances in the city of Edmonton and region by cutting the fire services available ambulances. So there were less trucks in the transition. And from that data, now, we have never, never invested to appropriately to maintain for call volume or for population growth in this province. So if there was a solution, I would figure that after 10 years of trying in-hospital <laughs> offloads, um, putting additional single paramedic units on the street in Edmonton because we don't have anybody anymore, you would have found a solution there. But what you failed to do was to continue repairing your house over this Ten-year term, and well, at some point the windows need to be replaced. Che, that's where we're
0: at. Is it the fact we can't get EMTs, or do we have EMTs that want to work but can't get hired on? Well, you got you're talking about four hundred open shifts. I mean, are we short EMTs in Alberta? <laughs> there aren't paramedics
3: anymore, Che. Like the, this industry uh, has always had a, a high turnover rate because it's a it's a I high sorry, risk, high stress job, and it burns people. They haven't been refilling, and they've been using uh, casual workers, which doesn't help anybody. Uh, casual uh, workers are available when casual workers want to work, not scheduled right, to work. Yeah, and this, yeah. is what you're, this is what you're seeing now, is that why would I want to come to work when there's 400 available shifts as a casual employee? Darren Sandback says, oh, I'm going to find a solution. I'll hire some more. Well, here's the reality. It takes over three years to make a paramedic to school and then a few more months to onboard them. So failure of the organization by not hiring over the years, not investing in the front lines of healthcare, care, and here we are, 400 ships in just the city of Calgary alone.
0: That's a huge number. Mike, thanks well, so much and, for your time today.
3: <laughs> and and apparently we're going to run a stampede uh, as well. So, uh, And I just want to clarify one last point. There is no Shay, as we work through these stories, there is no uh, EMTs anymore within the
0: industry. They are all called paramedics all called on the paramedics. Front gotcha, right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks so much, Mike. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks, Shay. You bet. Bye. That is Mike Parker, who is president of the Health Sciences Association of Alberta and an advanced care paramedic. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.